This is the Author Archive podcast. Now, if you go to a polite dinner party, they say don't talk about sex, religion or politics. Well, this episode features a conversation I had with Wendy Perriam. We never got as far as politics, but you can't talk to Wendy without sex and religion. As a youngster, she was very religious and she went to a convent. And uh, the way she writes about it, you wouldn't want to do the same or send your children. Now, this conversation happened because there was a new collection of short stories called Dreams, Demons and Desires. That gives you a bit of a clue. There are still available collections of Wendy Perriam short stories, although not using that title. But I, I dived in on this day. And uh, I started talking about life in the convent. In one of her stories, a girl goes down into the basement of the convent and for some reason has to be punished. And it had that sort of air of veracity about it. So, Wendy, did this happen? I was latching onto something real, is that the nuns were often punishing us, not for what it appeared. Maybe they were punishing us for being women, for having developing breasts, for having long hair, for all the things which sadly, because I do feel for the nuns now, some of them had gone straight from their convent schools at 17 into a convent and they'd never lived. And some of them had been very much sort of directed that way. They hadn't had much choice of what they wanted to do. And they saw us, not, not, not like nowadays when everyone's so free, but they still saw us with a chance of leaving and having men and having children and being married. And, and I think some of them were jealous. And I do feel that. I don't think it's any good going through life sort of feeling bitter. I was quite bitter at the time because they expelled me and I was very, very unhappy. I made a suicide attempt, you know, I was very unhappy. But now I think, well, they were sad themselves, their lives. You know, I, I particularly know because I wrote a novel called Devils for a Change about a nun who left her convent after 20 odd years. And I based it on a friend of mine who had been at my school and then entered as a nun. And some of the stories she told me about how hard it was to be a nun and the sort of bitchiness. And also when she left, although it had been her home, 20 odd years no one was allowed to say goodbye she had to leave out of the back door like a criminal so you know thinking about that i do feel very sorry but but you know who says it's got to be like that who directs it you you're speaking as if the power of the individual that the, the individual is disempowered so that they cannot make it you know the the, the friends of your friend could have said but they're not allowed to. Who says? Well, I think the point is that you grow up right from the word go in such a obedient atmosphere that you think that it's so wrong to disagree or to argue. The whole thing is built into you that you must be humble, you must be submissive. You know, our role model was a Blessed Virgin Mary who didn't say, you know, I've written another book about the another story about the Annunciation you've probably come mm. across, but she didn't say, you know, why the hell am I having this child, you know, by the Holy Ghost? She just said, be it done unto me according to thy word. And that was our role model. And I found that very difficult because I was quite a noisy, exuberant child and I didn't want to be like the Blessed Virgin. You know, I wanted to argue and say, no, no, but we were so taught to be quiet. And we had this thing called the Great Silence, which lasted from 8 p.m. 
to in the night to 8 a.m. in the morning and you must not say a single word. And if you did say, can I open the window, can I have a glass of water, then you had to report that to the, to the headmistress in the morning, who was a nun. And it's so different from how people are now that we just got into the habit of being submissive. That, that was how it was. You, it was almost impossible to imagine not doing it. That, I, I read this sitting in the sun and I was appalled. I was appalled at the nuns. You just feel vicious towards them, or at least I did. But you also feel fairly appalled by your parents or the parents of the protagonist because you say, they're a million miles away. You, know, you can't rely on them for, for personal support. Um, if you're a mother, you would support your child, wouldn't you? But it seems as if one generation back, you couldn't rely on that. Definitely not, because first of all, there was no way you could get in touch with them because you couldn't phone. You weren't allowed to go to a phone. I mean, it was unheard of. And you, if you, you know, some, not all the letters were read, but the letters could be read. So if you wrote a letter, complaining of injustice, it could well be read. And also, my father had been in a seminary training to be a Catholic priest, so his sympathies would be on the side of the nuns, and he saw me as a sort of undisciplined child. I was sent away to be disciplined, so he wasn't going to be on my side, you know, no way! And uh, so, it, you did feel, I felt incredibly, incredibly alone when I was expelled because not only had I sort of lost the support of my family and friends, but much more important, which may be difficult for people to know when you haven't got a religion, I'd lost all this wonderful, what we call the communion of saints. That was all the people up there, you know, who died and gone ahead of us, all the saints, all favourites like St Francis who loved the animals and St Joseph and all these saints. They were as real to me in my childhood as, you know, anybody in my own friends. They were so real and angels and all these things, which is why it's a wonderful religion for a writer, because it's so dramatic. It, it gives you hell and heaven, you know, evil and good, angels and devils, and it peoples your world with all these amazing people with wonderful names, you know, Bonaventure. I mean, the nuns were called things like Mother Mary Bonaventure and Mother Mary Ignatius, and you had all these wonderful sounds in your head. And also, every day, it wasn't just a day, it wasn't just Monday, Tuesday, it was Whit Sunday or the Feast of St Bonaventure or, you know, it was the third Sunday before Pentecost or... And there were all these fantastic ways that the world became more interesting, which I still miss. I still miss them, you know, I want them to be that. And there were different vestments for each day. So the priest would be wearing red because it was the feast day of a martyr or he'd be wearing green or white or, you know, and everything was woven with these symbols. And of course, symbols are wonderful in writing. How old were you when you were evicted? 18. Mm. So when you arrived at Oxford, were you somehow uh, in, in a state of need? Were oh, I was in a terrible state, yes. I mean, I. The awful thing was that I was still in a convent because I went to St Anne's. There were only five women's colleges in those days. And I went to St Anne's and they had hostels. And I was in the same order of nuns and I'd just been at school. So that was dreadful. So they knew already I'd left. So they kept sending priests round. So I was actually very unhappy and I wrestled with the faith. I didn't give it up happily. It wasn't a question of lapsing. I wrestled with it and I talked to these priests and I'd go down to the Catholic chaplaincy where all these people believed and I'd longed to believe. And, and of course, I was very 
guilt-ridden about sex because this was the first time I'd ever had the chance to have any sex. And I felt terribly that, you know, if I, if I had one affair, I'd be damned forever. So it was quite difficult, really. And, and I felt I couldn't really speak to anyone about this because I was fighting to, to keep my faith and yet realised it, it had gone. So I was reading all about it and, and, you know, a lot of people around me were having a good time. So it was very quite heavy. <laughs> There's a story that ends with a proposal of marriage, but it's not a happy proposal of marriage. It's all, it's all a bit reluctant. It's all a bit, I mean, it, it, it's not joyful coupling. It's worrying about microbes, you know, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely, yes, that's right. That story began from another real thing. I got caught, it's called cloudburst. It's mm, the one that, yeah. I got caught in a cloudburst. I was in a park like the heroine is and I was absolutely drenched. You know, my clothes were just sort of clinging to me. And I was with this man, not a man I was ever going to marry, but he said, take all your clothes off. So I did, and I sort of wrapped myself in this rug and we got into this traffic jam. And I was sort of sitting there feeling really weird, sort of naked under this rug. And from there, this idea came into my mind of this husband and wife, or this, no, this boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. And, and I suppose because, again, in my day, if that sounds so old, keep saying in my day, but it was different because then you thought you were really on the shelf if you didn't get married pretty soon. And when I left university, almost everyone got married at 21. Now, I actually didn't. I ran away to America as another little rebellion. But I soon came back and did get married. And in a way, I didn't want to get married. I, I, I didn't know anything about anything. But it was the sort of thing that you did. You know, it was expected of you. So all my life, and in my writing especially, I'm pulled between sort of duty and doing what's expected of you and being controlled and doing and kicking over the traces and being a rebel. And I've noticed that lots and lots of my novels, although I didn't plan them, are about this in some form or another. And Faye Weldon once said to me, every writer should go through all the books they've written and ask themselves what theme keeps coming up. And I didn't have time to read them all, but I went and looked back and I thought, good gracious, so many people in my novels are trapped. They're trapped in something, into a marriage or into a job or into a way of being, and they want to be another way. And I would never have seen that if Faye Weldon hadn't suggested it to me. Well, I, I noticed that that short story about the rain, it could have been about horniness, roundiness, sensuality and whatever, but it's all reluctant. But there's a very short story which has got a joyful sort of revelling in language. Uh, some standing by a lift shaft and yelling um, syllables, you know, and that seemed to have a joy about it, which the sex one didn't. Yes, well, there is another sex one, isn't there, called Three Minute Egg, where there's a lot of sensuality. But of course, even in that one, I mean, she imagines this amazingly wild sex. And that's a strange story because I wrote it one way. Actually, for a, a magazine, like, I think it was Penthouse or something. In fact, I could make a lot of money if only I wrote for Penthouse. And in that one, I had the sex as real. Not because it was Penthouse, just that's how I thought it would be. And then when I came to rewrite the story, which I sometimes do, I decided it would be much more subtle if she didn't really have the sex. It was all in her mind. But then there's a twist so that we don't really know whether she had it or whether she didn't have it. Because I feel, in my life anyway, that there's such a thin line between what 
does happen and what you imagine that happens. Perhaps because I'm always in another world. I'm always <laughs> exactly. in some other world, you know. And I sometimes get quite muddled, you know, as to what happened and what didn't happen. There is such a thin line. Rather like going back to the first story in the convent, you know, I didn't actually see the nun doing that weird thing. But having written it, I almost think, well, did I? Did I? Did I? You know, and I think this happens with a lot of people's lives. And it's known that memory is very, very deceptive. Mm. We often remember things that actually weren't true at all. So in the Three Minute Egg one, it's again about a, a woman who's sort of trapped in a bad marriage. But she has this wild side and she goes out and imagines that she's been hooked by this young fisherman. She is the fish. She's being flailed on the end of this line, you know. And... Uh, but the one with the lift shaft, yeah, that's a very strange... It is, it's very story. peculiar. Very peculiar, yes, it is a very peculiar... Why I love writing short stories, and I do love them, is that you're so much freer. You can change styles in every story. Um, you can have what publishers call unsympathetic characters. You know, they, they always want all characters to be sympathetic and all things to be upbeat, and that's very trying. And there's a story called S.O.S. with a rather morose, bad-tempered man called John. And that wouldn't have worked in a novel because the readers would have get fed up with a morose, bad-tempered person. But as it's a very short story, it sort of works. And I quite like difficult characters. I find it much easier and more interesting to write about difficult characters. I mean, placid, contented people, for me, don't work. No, no, I like the one about Dudley the dog. Oh, Dudley the dog. Yes, Dudley the dog. Well, that was space. We had a wonderful red setter called William. And William was very, very nervous, worse than me. In, in thunderstorms, I had to sit up with him all night and hold his paw because he couldn't cope. And the, the nervousness wore him out and he died an early death, unfortunately. We were all terribly sad. He's buried in the garden. But after he was dead, we imagined him. We were, you know, we'd say, walk his, walk his, William, and we'd go out and we'd pretend he was with us. And we'd say, oh, William, come on, and we are slightly mad. I mean, we, meaning my husband and I, did this. And uh, we still do, because he, he loved flies, if there was a fly around. And if we see a fly now, we say, William, and immediately he starts killing the fly, though he's been dead for years. So that gave me the idea for this story about this pair. And again, it's quite a sad marriage because mm. their marriage only really works with the because dog. of Dudley, with the dog. Without the dog, they can't cope. They just can't cope. And so they sort of magic him into existence. <laughs> Talking to you, have you ever had therapy? Uh, yes. <laughs> Did it work? No. <laughs> no. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman, and that was the irrepressible Wendy Perriam talking to me. Now, when you listen to some of these conversations, you might think, I wonder what they say when the microphone's off. Well, I remember some of the things that Wendy Perriam said, and um, you'd be amazed. I'm David Freeman.